Well, today we're continuing through the gospel according to John in the series called Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And we're going to be finishing John chapter 12 today. And this is the end of the public ministry of Jesus. And in this final chapter of his public ministry, uh, we see the difficulty of faith. So if you're new to the Christian faith, you might assume that having faith in God is easy because you, what? Just believe. Just believe in God, right? That doesn't sound too hard. It's, it's not what you do that saves you. We say, say that all the time here. Because salvation is a gift of God's grace that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, a little longer perhaps, you, if you've really tried to follow the way of Jesus then you probably quickly see or have seen how difficult faith can be. Faith is a battle. Now, I've been a pastor for almost 13 years now, but I've been a Christian for almost my whole life. But for years now, do you know what has been at the very top of my daily to-do list? Just simply says, pray. Do you know why that stays on my to-do list? Because I forget. I, believer in Jesus, student of God's word, pastor, forget about God and therefore forget to pray to him on a regular basis unless I remind myself. How could that be? Why is that so hard? Well, I've had God dramatically answer my prayers. So it's not as though prayer to me may or may not work. And I've had some incredibly powerful times in prayer where I really had a sense of the presence of God with me as I spoke with him. So it's not as if nothing ever happened. And I'm definitely the best version of myself when I consistently spend time with God in prayer. So why on earth would I forget to pray when it's something that is so helpful for me and is so powerful in my life? Because of the difficulty of faith. It doesn't come easy. Even after all these years, even after everything I know about who God is, I still get distracted and tempted and confused and anxious and afraid. What the heck is going on? Have you ever had difficulty to believe? Well, in our passage for today, we see the difficulty of faith. But we also see this beautiful and gracious response of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, and if you, like me, have ever struggled or wrestled with God to believe, if you've experienced faith as a battle, I want you to go to John chapter 12, starting with verse 37. There is so much goodness for us here. Let's work through this together. John 12, starting with verse 37. 
even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Okay, let's pause here for now. So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you'll know that we're in the week leading up to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was anointed at the beginning of the week in Bethany by his friend and, and disciple Mary. And then we had the triumphal entry of Jesus when he was welcomed as a king coming into the city of Jerusalem. And then last week, Justin preached on Jesus' favorite title for himself, that is, the Son of Man. And we saw there that the Son of Man title points both to the kingship of Jesus, his authority, as the promised king of the kingdom of God, but also as his identity as the suffering servant that uh, the prophet Isaiah writes about so, so often. Well, next week with the start of John chapter 13, we will have the Last Supper and all of the teachings and the events that happened on the night before the cross. So, so here in John's gospel, this really is the end of Jesus' public ministry before he goes off with his disciples and the night before his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. So here at the end of this public ministry of Jesus, John summarizes really what was, as we've seen, the whole middle section of his gospel by saying that even though Jesus had performed so many signs in the presence of so many people, they still would not all believe in him. Now we've seen this for several months. As a church, Jesus would do something amazing saying and doing something that only God could say or do. And there would be this mixed response. Some people would believe, while others would not. The people were divided over who Jesus was. But this wasn't an accident. Because John says in verse 38 in this passage that this was to fulfill God's word in Isaiah. The Lord knew this was going to happen. And then he gives us two different quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6. Now, to go back to the context of those quotes, we know that chapter 53 in Isaiah is all about the work of this suffering servant that the Lord said would, who would take away the sins of the people. He would suffer and die, but he would see the light of life and be satisfied, providing justification for many people. That's what Isaiah predicted. Uh, but Isaiah wondered, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord often refers to the power of God. So this is a reference to seeing the miraculous signs. We saw seven so far in John's gospel. Seeing these miraculous signs, the arm of the Lord, his power, his work in the world. And I think this is an important point because I think it's tempting for me to think that if I were there, if I were there in that day with Jesus, 
if we had seen God do what he did in the scriptures, like if we were alive during the time of Moses and we saw God part the sea and the people of Israel walk across on the dry land, or if we, saw, if we were alive during the time of Jesus and we saw Jesus feed thousands of people from just a, a little bit of food or walk on the water or calm the storm or heal people who were sick or give sight to the blind, all of these things that we've been reading about in John's gospel, if we would have been there, then our faith would be unshakable, wouldn't it? But not every Israelite in ancient Israel who lived through the many signs and wonders of the Exodus time, had perfect faith after seeing all of that that God did. Not every person had perfect faith in the time of Jesus. The disciples' faith seemed to come and go fairly easily when they were eyewitnesses to what Jesus said and did. Incredible things. So both then... And during the time of Jesus and today, miraculous signs, they can help our faith, but they are never a guarantee of faith. Seeing is not always believing. Someone who is firmly stuck in their unbelief will believe all manner of things, sometimes preposterous things, so they don't have to change their already held beliefs. Now, some people today call this confirmation bias. The biblical phrase would be foolish pride. But their eyes are blind, their hearts are hard, and these are metaphors for being closed to repentance, closed to faith, closed ultimately to God. And John contrasts these people to the prophet Isaiah. Now, if you know Isaiah's story, Specifically in chapter 6, which he quotes here, Isaiah was a man whose eyes were open, whose heart was soft, who saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now this was 700 years before this time, and what John is saying is that the vision of Isaiah chapter 6 is when Isaiah walked into the throne room of God and had this, had this vision of, of God on the throne, high and lifted up, This was actually, John says, a vision of Jesus in glory before the incarnation of Jesus into the world. So despite this glorious heavenly experience, when God sent Isaiah, when he commissioned him to be his prophet, to speak his word to his people, he said that Isaiah's ministry would not be obviously fruitful. Many people would continue to be blind and hard-hearted no matter what he might say. If you read Isaiah, it's such an impressive piece of work. If it weren't in the Bible, it would be studied on its own as one of the great literary works of history. Because Isaiah was brilliant. But his genius didn't guarantee that everyone who heard him would believe him. Lord, who has believed our message? Now, John uses these references to remind us that the difficulty of faith did not start with Jesus. In many ways, it was the story of God's relationship with Israel from Genesis on down. And yet, 
there was always a remnant of people in every generation who did believe. Now these people were not perfect, but these were faithful men and women. And we see that there still was a remnant during the time of Jesus. If we look back at verse 32, let's continue on in our text. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Okay, so, so some people saw the signs that Jesus performed and did not believe, but others did believe in Jesus, including, at this point, and it's interesting that John notes it, even some of the Jewish leaders at this, at this time. However, there was a problem. They were afraid to admit it publicly because, John says, they loved human praise more than praise from God. They were scared because of the social pressure against Jesus to say anything about him, even though they did believe in him. This is a timid faith. This is a nervous faith. Now, what John said back in chapter 7 is continuing to be true. He said no one would say anything publicly about Jesus for fear of the leaders. Now some of the leaders believe in him, but they're afraid to say anything also because of the Pharisees, the more conservative religious and political leaders in their time. Or you might remember from John's Gospel, the parents of the man who was born blind, who was healed by Jesus, they were afraid to admit that Jesus had healed their son because they were afraid, John says, of being put out of the synagogue. Now, this is no small threat for people in this culture in this time. Being excommunicated from the synagogue was like being kicked out not only of your local church, but of the local society that you were a part of. It was integral to faith and life in their time. Being cut off from the synagogue, cast out from the synagogue, meant being cut off from all your friends, from your whole social network from your reputation as a good person, possibly from your ability to do business with your neighbors, and from your ability to worship God together with the people of God. This was a major, major threat. But can you be a Christian and still be a coward? Can you have authentic faith and yet give in to your fears? Well, the answer is... Yes, you can. Now, I wouldn't recommend it because fear is often presented by Jesus as the opposite of faith and faith the antidote to our fear. But thank God, our salvation does not depend on the strength of our courage. It only ever depends on the courageous work of Christ. This is good news. However, here... At the end of almost three years of public ministry, of Jesus preaching and teaching, by the way, sermons that will be studied for the rest of time, <laughs> this weren't just like okay, right? These, it was Jesus preaching. 
After years of Jesus healing people and casting out demons and demonstrating, performing many signs and wonders that were incredible, amazing, things no one else had ever seen before, and, and years of sharing his life with his disciples, of them being able to see the character of Jesus, that he was, and his integrity over time, he didn't change. John says that the outcome of this perfect ministry was similar to Isaiah's ministry. It was, at this point, not obviously fruitful. How would Jesus respond? Would he lash out in anger? How dare you people reject me, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Am I the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, or not? Would Jesus turn inward? And have a crisis of faith himself. Am I the Christ? The Messiah? The Son of God? But no, Jesus wouldn't do either one. This is not Jesus. We see his response as we continue with verse 44. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. So Jesus doesn't get angry and, and he doesn't question his own identity. He responds to this mixed bag of faith, this fairly unimpressive, underwhelming display of faith with this broad invitation, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, anyone who believes in me, both then and now, by the way, does not only believe in me, but in the one who sent me. And who sent Jesus? Who has he been talking about who sent him from the beginning of this gospel account? It's his Father in heaven. It's God, the creator of all things, of heaven, the heavens and the earth. And, and this is so great. He says, no one who believes in me will stay in the darkness. And so when you believe in Jesus, you are believing in God the Father in heaven and vice versa. When you believe in God, you believe in Jesus. Jesus will go on to tell us more about this unique union that he enjoys with the Father, but here he promises a result of this faith. He promises light for those who believe. And light in John's gospel refers to both the truth and the glory of God. Now, if I were Jesus, I would have been so frustrated with these people, just to be perfectly honest. Thank the Lord I'm not him. Uh, have you not been paying attention to what I've been doing? Have you not been listening to what I have been telling you people for years? This is how I would respond to them. Okay, I would have wanted to smack people with the light of truth and punish them for their lack of faith in me. And yet Jesus is just not frustrated by the difficulty of their faith. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't write them off as hopeless idiots. Jesus is not threatened by their fears or their doubts or their questions. He just continues to speak to them. He continues to minister to them. He continues to invite them into a deeper relationship with him and see him more truly and believe in him more fully. He continues to offer light to those living in a land of darkness. 
And if you're following along at home, you may see a third reference to Isaiah in this language, Isaiah chapter 9. But Jesus continues to offer a way to those who do not know the way and a life to those who are dying. But according to Jesus, all of this comes by faith, by believing and trusting in him. However, with such a simple way for us to receive Jesus and receive the life that is found in his name, with, with, with a subsequent faith that might seem fragile at best, how can we know that we are truly saved? How can we know that we are truly his and are not false disciples like Judas? Well, Jesus ends his public teaching here by giving us a simple test for our faith. Let's finish this passage with verse 47. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at that last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And this is God's word. Well, the simple way to test our fragile faith is this. If we obey the words or the commands of Jesus. Now, Jesus said elsewhere that you can know a tree by its fruit. The fruit of faith, no matter how fragile, will be a commitment to do what Jesus says. So Bible study is one of the key behaviors of mature Christians. But Bible study is only as helpful as it produces real change, real transformation in your life. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so this test of obedience here does not deny the difficulty of faith because Christians are not yet made perfect. We are in the process of being made holy. So neither our faith, our knowledge of the truth, nor our obedience will yet be perfect. However, for true believers, there will be a commitment to put the words of Jesus into practice as best we can and to repent when we realize that we have failed to do so in some area of our life and then get up and continue in faith once again knowing that we are forgiven in Christ. This really is the Christian life. This is what it's all about. Now, as promised, Jesus also tells us a little more about this union, this unique relationship that he has with his Father in heaven. He goes on from saying that if you believe in him, you will believe in the Father who sent him, and if you see him, you are seeing his Father, to hear, if you listen to Jesus, you are listening to the words of the Father. They are one. 
And this is why Jesus is the complete revelation of God to the world. He is the living embodiment of the word of God. He, as John said, was the word of God made flesh. So if you fail to see Jesus and listen to Jesus and believe in Jesus, you fail to see and listen to and believe in God. Thus, the same words that bring hope and healing and life to those who believe are words that actually reveal the condemnation of those who do not. Now, someone might think, wait, this doesn't seem fair, does it? Why doesn't Jesus just simply save everyone? But you have to remember the message of the whole Bible. Jesus didn't come into a good world to make it better. He came into a dying world in rebellion against God and deserving of complete condemnation, and he won the forgiveness and life through his own sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead. The Christian gospel is not first a life improvement plan, although if you follow Jesus, I truly believe that is the best way to live. The gospel is, first and foremost, a story about a rescue mission. And it was one that required the death of the Son of God to make it work. And so the grace of God, given freely to us, though it was costly for Christ, is never fair. It is never something that we earn or deserve. It's a gift. But it's a gift that leads to eternal life in Jesus' name. Now, one day, on the other side of eternity, we will be made new. Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. Then, in that day, we will not have to live by faith alone, for we will see him face to face. But for today, on this side of eternity... While it is still today, between the first resurrection and the final resurrection of the dead, we will have to walk by faith and not by sight. And so we have to learn to live with the difficulty of faith. Now, in many ways, this is what it looks like to learn the way of Jesus. It's a lifelong lesson where we learn we can trust the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and we do not have to lean on our own understanding. But what does this mean for us today? How can we apply this teaching to our lives today? Well, I'd like to close today with two brief thoughts. First, how this relates to others, our relationship with other people, when they struggle to believe. And second, how, this, how we might persevere in our faith when we struggle to believe. So first, how does this relate to other people? Well, I hope that seeing the difficulty of faith of the people who saw Jesus with their own eyes and experienced firsthand these incredible things we've been reading about, I hope that this might give you some empathy for your friends and family members who might struggle with their faith today. Faith is hard. Faith is a battle. Even when you do believe, it 
takes the whole rest of your life to continue to grow and mature in your faith and be transformed into the likeness of Christ. So, so let's refuse to give in to frustration. Let's refuse to berate or shame those who are struggling in their faith. We're called to be merciful to those who doubt. Jesus didn't do these things, and neither should we. We must remain faithful and hopeful and continue to offer the broad invitation of the gospel that Jesus offers here to all, to all people, to come and see, to come and join the light of truth and the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, how might we persevere in our faith when we are struggling? Well, we first must understand that we are not seeking to follow Jesus in a neutral environment. This is a spiritual battlefield. And so we must fight. We must fight the good fight. We must fight against the temptation of our own flesh, the own, our old desires. We must fight against the spiritual confusion and the idolatry of the world. We must fight against the spiritual forces of darkness looking to divide us, to distract us, or to destroy us, the people of God. And we must live with intention and purpose because no one drifts into the way of Jesus. We must continue to pray. We must continue to meditate on God's word. We must continue to be obedient to the commands of Christ. We must continue to meet together and encourage one another, to spur one another on in love and good deeds, in worship of the Lord together. We must continue to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. We must continue to cry out for more of the Holy Spirit, more light, more truth, more knowledge, more of an experience of the love of Christ in our hearts. This is how we persevere. This is how we struggle and fight against the difficulty of faith in a broken world. We fight. We continue. We continue on and we pull one another up when we fall down. And yet my hope and my prayer for you and I is this, that at the end of your life, as the Apostle Paul said at the end of his, that you could say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And that Jesus would welcome us into his kingdom saying well done my good and faithful servant not because of the strength of our faith or the perfection of our lives but because of his faithfulness to us let us pray our father in heaven we thank you for sending your son jesus on a rescue mission to seek and to save us when we were lost. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us to grow 
in our faith. I pray that you'd strengthen our faith. I pray, Lord, that our faith would be bold, that we would have courage, and that we would be able to face the the scary things of life, the storms of life, the difficulties of life, the temptations of our flesh. I pray that we would face these things boldly and courageously because of who you are and because of all that you have done and all that you have promised for our future. But Lord, today I'm sure some of us are feeling kind of weak. Some of us really are struggling in our faith. Some of us really are feeling the difficulty of our faith. And Lord, I pray that you would comfort us, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would let us know that you are not angry about this, but you are continuing to offer the invitation of Jesus that any one of us who puts our faith and trust in him, that we would be not only saved, but we would be welcomed into fellowship with you, that we would be able to have the kind of union with you that Jesus has had and enjoyed with you from before the creation of the world. And Lord, that we would be loved sons and daughters who are adopted into your family. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us this boldness. I pray for faith. And I pray, Lord, at the end of the day that you would get the glory, you would get the honor, you would get the praise of any good thing that we do as a result of our faith in this life. May you receive all the light. It's yours to begin with, and it's yours forevermore. But we pray all this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.